Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Rust and Rubble by a basic wagon. This group from Stark and Harrison counties is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you more about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Now, there are riots, and then there are riots. Try this one. Start with a mob of thousands exchanging gunfire with police and have two children killed in the hail of bullets. Next, set a few buildings on fire. And when firefighters arrived to stop the flames from destroying the central business district, hold revolvers to their heads to make them stop. Let's throw into this mix a police chief so terrified he flees the city in the midst of the attack. And for good measure, let's use dynamite to level City Hall. Holy cow! That doesn't sound like a mob. That sounds like a war. Where did this happen? Uh, your hometown. Akron? Uh, yeah. One of the worst riots the state of Ohio had ever experienced. Tonight's episode is part of our occasional mob mentality series. The mystery being how a group of individuals can morph into something completely unexpected, uncontrollable, and unreasonable, which you'll see as our story plays out. <laughs> I'm ready for this. What year was this? It was 1900. The dawn of a new century for a city that had become a manufacturing mecca. The rubber industry was booming, and by 1900, the population had swelled to nearly 43,000 people. Akron was a diverse collection of homegrown folk, immigrants, and southerners who came north in search of work, for there was plenty to be had. Up until then, the city's peace had been kept by elected marshals, who patrolled the streets, earning $50 a month and 50 cents for each arrest. That changed in 1898, when the city formed an actual police department and hired 25 officers. They worked 12-hour shifts, earning $2 a day. 
There was serious crime on occasion, but most of the time police were dealing with public intoxication, gambling, and theft. So this young force was woefully unprepared for what was about to happen. The subject of this mob's fury in this story was a black man named Louis Peck. I mention his race, of course, because that's usually a big factor in mob activities of that period. Peck was about 36 years old, a husband and father, and he had moved his family from Garrettsville in Portage County to Mill Street in Akron in May of 1900. He was a carriage painter by trade, but hadn't found that particular work yet, so he'd been juggling several odd jobs since coming to town. Three months after his arrival, in mid-August, Akron police were called to a West Akron home. It was around 7 p.m. on a stormy Monday night. The homeowner, Mary Waltz, had heard a child's screams mingling with the thunder and lightning. And when she looked outside, she saw a little girl at the side of the road crying for her parents. Police determined she was six-year-old Christina Maas, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Theodore Maas, who lived on Perkins Hill. The girl told a story of how she had been playing in her yard a couple of hours earlier, before the storm arrived, when a man came along in a horse-drawn carriage and asked if she wanted to go for a ride. She accepted, and he drove her out of the neighborhood, up Exchange Street, past a schoolhouse, and ending in a wooded area off Merriman Road the police learned the girl had been sexually assaulted. News reports weren't consistent in how they explained this. Descriptions ranged from attempted rape to sodomy. Whatever had happened, the man left her in the woods and drove off, crushing her foot beneath the wagon wheel in his haste. The girl limped through the storm out of the woods and made it to the edge of the road where she was found. Police said the girl couldn't give police a clear description of her assailant. I can only assume she must have at least mentioned dark skin because police started looking for a black man. Tuesday morning, officers learned that a black man had borrowed a horse and carriage from Pringles Livery Stable on Monday afternoon and that it was returned Monday night but by a different man. Officers then got a tip that the borrower was Louis Peck and that Peck had left town Monday night to go to Youngstown. But he was expected to be back soon. And so officers staked out the Union train depot waiting for his return. Sure enough, when the Wednesday midnight run pulled into town, Peck stepped onto the platform and was promptly arrested by Officer John Duffy. Peck was taken to the Akron City Jail which was supervised by John Washer in a position known as the prison keeper. Later that same day, Washer told investigators he had been chatting with Peck, and Peck gave him a complete confession. The Beacon Journal wrote, and here's a quote, The story that Peck gave nearly staggered Mr. Washer. It was a narration of one of the most inhuman deeds that it is possible to conceive and it was told freely. Peck attributed his behavior to liquor, saying he was drunk and had been so for a full month. Summit County Prosecutor Reuben Wanamaker followed up, 
taking a stenographer with him, and said Peck repeated for him the entire story. Thursday morning, Peck was taken to court, and he pled guilty. A sentencing date was set. This story was told in the Akron Beacon Journal on August the 22nd. That same day, the lynch mob began to form. First, it came as whispers, and authorities quickly recognized Peck was in danger. At 4 p.m. Thursday, Summit County Sheriff Frank Kelly picked up Peck and another black inmate who was being held for a minor offense, but would no doubt be in danger from a mob as well, and whisked them off to Cleveland for safekeeping. By 6.30 p.m., some 300 people were milling about South Main Street in front of the brick city building that housed the mayor, city council, police, and jail. They were shouting demands that Peck be turned over to them. Officials tried telling the crowd Peck was no longer in town, but the mob wasn't buying it, and the crowd continued to grow. It started with mostly men and boys, but reporters noted that before long, a full third of the group were women. Soon, the crowd approached perhaps 3,000 to 4,000 people. About eight or nine police officers took up posts at the entrance and the windows of the city building. All it took was one good shout from a mob ringleader to incite the crowd. A man yelled out, come on, let's get him, and various small groups moved into a single howling mass and surged forward. At the door to the prison, they were met by Patrolman Wilson, who offered a solution. Six members of the mob could go through the building and verify to the others that Peck wasn't inside. Some of the ringleaders agreed, gave themselves a tour of the building, and reported back to the crowd that their man wasn't inside. The mob didn't believe him. Mayor W.E. Young stood in a north window of the building while the crowd surged, yelling to them his promise that Peck was not there and reminding them that a committee of their own had just scoured the building. Desperate to calm the crowd in that tinderbox moment, he even shouted, Peck would be back for a trial, and if you want him, you can get him then. The crowd only booed. John Wintrode, one of the citizens that had been picked to go through the hall, tried to reason with the rioters, saying they were satisfied he wasn't there. The crowd heckled him. The mayor agreed to a second committee of six. This time, the committee went through City Hall all the way to the roof, then waved to the crowd from above to show how thorough they had been. The mob hooted, just as they had before. Clearly, there was no answer that would satisfy. Reporters guessed there may have been 300 or so people in the crowd intent on doing harm. The rest of those gathered were content to cheer them on. A few men found a ladder and approached the jail door, using the ladder as a battering ram. Police inside fired. At the crowd or in the air, nobody could say but it was enough to motivate those in the crowd who carried revolvers to fire back. Those without weapons found a stockpile of bricks nearby. They threw them at windows and people on the other side. When the smoke cleared from this initial attack, the horror was revealed. 
Some 20 people lay in the streets injured, either from bullets or bricks, and two children were down. One bullet found 11-year-old Glenn Wade, who lived with his mother, Lillian Wade, at the Empire Hotel. He was shot through the heart and whisked into J.T. Enright's undertaking establishment, but treatment could do nothing for him. He died instantly. Another bullet found four-year-old Rhoda Davidson, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. J.M. Davidson of Allen Street. They were passing through town in their carriage when they were wedged in by the mob in front of the city building at the corner of Main and Quarry Streets. She was sitting in her mother's arms when a bullet entered her head. She was carried into the Kaufman Brothers drugstore to be treated and held on for two days before succumbing to her wounds. Ambulances arrived to carry away the wounded, but it only caused a brief pause in the violence because now the crowd was enraged. Someone set fire to Columbia Hall, a frame structure adjacent to the city building that was used as a skating rink. The flames illuminated the sight of a group of young men running fast down the street toward the city hall. They just looted the standard hardware store of all its shotguns, rifles, revolvers, and boxes of ammunition. They lined up along Main Street and began firing into the city building as fast as they could reload their weapons. A man with a repeating Winchester shotgun had managed to perch himself on top of the Beacon Journal building and was firing off with all the speed he could command. Before all of this started, the police chief had told his prison keeper, John Washer, to take his wife out for the night. The chief thought if the mob saw the warden was absent, they would understand there was no one inside to guard. So Washer and his wife went to a fish fry south of town. They returned around 10.45 that night and wished they hadn't. They came upon the crowd, some of whom recognized him. The mob surged toward the buggy and demanded to know where the prisoner was. Washer repeated what everyone had already told the gathering, that Peck had been turned over to Sheriff Kelly that afternoon and taken out of town. Confirmation only angered the crowd. Someone hit Washer in the head with a brick, knocking him to the ground. Others attacked his wife, attempting to tear her clothes off. The couple was finally able to take refuge in Kaufman's drugstore, and the crowd eventually turns attention back to City Hall. By now, everyone who had been in City Hall was gone. The mayor, the chief, the officers, that all slipped out a rear door unnoticed. Outside, the fire department arrived to tackle the fire at Columbia Hall. Typical of mobs, they cut the fire hoses to stop them from doing their work. Firefighters replaced the hoses, but members of the mob leveled pistols at their heads and told them, let it burn. We've seen other riots where firefighters gave up and walked away. Who could blame them? But reporters said these guys did not. Instead, they turned their hoses on adjoining buildings to try and at least stop the spread, trusting that the armed rioters would allow them to save the rest of the street. Remember, this is an era when downtown buildings were largely made of wood, old, dry wood, and a fire could take out an entire business district with ease. 
And so that's how they did their work that night, many of them with a gun held to their head to make sure the water stream was never turned on the city building or Columbia Hall. Six firemen ended up injured that night, including one, Alonzo Manchester, who was shot in the neck for disobeying the crowd. He survived. The fire that had started at Columbia Hall was taking too long to light the brick city building to suit the crowd, so the mob produced two sticks of dynamite stolen from a nearby construction site. Just before 2 a.m., the explosives were set in place and lit. It completely wrecked the building. Around 4 a.m., the mob finally had enough and finally dispersed. When Thursday dawned in Akron, it revealed a scene of desolation. The city building was in smoldering ruins. Steam still emanated from the water-soaked Columbia Hall. Other businesses suffered. J.P. Whitelaw's Saloon, the Star Laundry, Quattrochi and Company Fruit Dealers, they were all a total loss. Others suffered broken windows and looting. Live electric wires lay across the street. Debris filled the streets and sidewalks. Destroyed inside City Hall were all sorts of records, including plats and maps of the city engineer's department. But the loss of the building was particularly personal for the prison keeper's family. Because the washers and their son lived on the premises, they lost everything, including their entire savings, which they had kept on site in cash. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The sunrise also revealed a disorganized police force. Akron's police chief, Hewland Harrison, had fled in the midst of the attack. Newspapers around the state reported he had been hit in the head with a brick and appeared to have lost his sanity as witnesses saw him driving furiously out of the city. And so the city's security was put in the hands of the Ohio National Guard out of Canton, who arrived by train and marched down the street from the depot to the leveled city hall. Reporters soon found Akron's missing police chief, he was hiding in Cleveland. Cleveland authorities assured the public Chief Harrison was not insane, but that he had run because he was afraid his and his family's lives were in jeopardy. Still, his absence needed to be filled. The mayor tried to appoint an officer, Albert Greenlessie, to the post, but he said no way. So Mayor Young asked a 17-year-old veteran patrolman named John Durkin to take the reins as acting chief, and he bravely accepted. Chief Harrison returned to Akron after a couple of days, saying he was ready to have his old job back. He told reporters he believed the gunplay started when an officer fired his weapon into the air to warn the crowd, and the mob responded by shooting back. He said he never told them to fire and insisted they stop after they did. 
though some continued as a matter of self-defense. He expressed regret that anyone had been killed in the exchange and said he left the city because he thought his absence might calm everyone down. But the mayor and city council were embarrassed that the man responsible for the city's security had run off. They fired him, and acting chief John Durkin was given the job permanently. On the Saturday after the riot, 11-year-old Glenn Wade was laid to rest at Glendale Cemetery. On Sunday, mourners gathered to march four-year-old Rhoda Davidson to her grave at Mount Peace. Martial law was in effect for about three days, and the National Guard stayed long enough for one last piece of business. Louis Peck was brought back to Akron to be sentenced. No one would represent him. He went through the legal maneuvers without benefit of counsel. A deputy said Peck had told him he'd plea guilty because he'd rather be sent to prison than face the men who had destroyed City Hall. A curious crowd gathered at the courthouse, loud and growling, but they took no action. Judge Nye asked Peck if he had anything to say before sentencing. He said no, he would throw himself on the mercy of the court. Nye sentenced him to life in prison at the Ohio Penitentiary, with the first 30 days to be spent in solitary confinement. The whole thing was over in 20 minutes. Sheriff Kelly and his deputies immediately took Peck to the train station, put him on board, and as the train pulled away, the deputies and the assembled crowd yelled in collective triumph that he was gone and the matter was over. In the weeks that followed, rioting charges were brought against 41 men and boys. They filled the county jail to overflowing. There were 32 convictions ranging from fines to imprisonment. Five people even earned time at the penitentiary. Nobody was identified as the shooter of Little Rhoda and Glenn, though it was generally accepted, given the circumstance and the trajectory, both had been killed by police officers. Some final notes on this amazing story. Thirteen years after the riot, Lewis Peck was pardoned by Governor James Cox, who determined he clearly had never had a fair trial. The prison warden and the parole board also expressed deep reservations that Peck was even guilty. Little Christina Moss, the rape victim at the center of all these events, went on to marry, had three children, and lived a long life. She died in 1984 at the age of 89 and she's buried in North Lawn Memorial Gardens in Cuyahoga Falls. And then there's this silver lining. I mentioned that after the police chief fled, the mayor had found a willing replacement in John Durkin, a native of Ireland who had been a patrolman for 17 years. If he had done nothing else, patrolman Durkin had already made his mark on history, because a year earlier, in 1899, the Akron Police Department became the first police force in the United States to have a police cruiser. It was a Ford Model T, and John Durkin was the first officer to use it when he was sent to pick up an intoxicated man at Main and Exchange Streets in December of 1899. 
but there's so much more to Durkin. Thanks to some research by Akron Beacon Journal reporter Mark J. Price, let me tell you about him. He was lanky, quirky, played the violin, didn't like his photo to be taken, and never learned to drive. He walked to work from his home on East Exchange and High Streets. In his 30 years as police chief, he never took a vacation. Durkin not only provided the stability the department needed, he modernized it, creating squads, a detective bureau, a traffic bureau, and introducing modern forensics like fingerprinting. He oversaw the building of a new police station. He was also the chief in 1922 when a black man named John Sudeth walked into the station and asked for a job application. Durkin hired him as the city's first black police officer. Sudeth would be shot and stabbed in service to the city, but stayed with the force for 40 years. Chief Durkin retired in 1930 at the age of 70 and died nine years later. Wow, what a crazy story, right? You know, they're kind of in our blood. You know, the mob mentality is in American blood for some reason. That's crazy. You know, we've done a few of these mob stories. Uh, nobody's gone this far. I mean, this was this was warfare. Right. I'm, I'm picturing those guys running down the street with weapons they looted and then creating this line and just firing into City Hall. Uh, uh, we haven't seen any mobs act that oh, no. crazy. No, uh, after the Floyd event, you know, downtown, I was driving the bus and... You know, they, it was more of an organized thing. They blocked off the road for the, you know, people who were protesting. I think some bricks were thrown and stuff like that. But, oh, man, I couldn't imagine this going on in Akron. Oh, no. No. And it did. <laughs> That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist, a Basic Wagon is a progressive indie rock band made up of Josh Arthurs on drums, lead vocals, and percussion, and Nathan Mitson on everything from guitar and keyboard to ukulele and accordion. They hail from Stark and Harrison counties. The unique thing about these guys, they specialize in brevity. They challenge themselves to get an idea across in songs that last just a minute or a little more. So we're going to play three of these micro songs for you tonight. Rust and Rubble, which we sampled at the start of the episode, as well as Six Feet and Ghost Him. All of them just about 75 seconds long, but packed with talent. And if you enjoy them, go to their website, abasicwagon.com, and feast on their entire discography. Well, let's have another listen to Rust and Rubble, as well as Six Feet and Ghost Him. By a basic wagon. Three songs for the size of one. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Slain just under the coast Trash what they
sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. <laughs> 